The Law Report with Tyrone Key. And a very good evening to you from tonight's Law Report program. And before we begin, a reminder that if you need any information regarding the Law Report, you can find it on Facebook. Just go to Law on SAFM. If you'd still like to contact me directly, you can email me on law at safm.co.za. Well, we won't be taking any calls this evening, and instead we'll be focusing on four different issues. Firstly, we'll be taking a look at white-collar crime. Well, despite the enactment of a new Companies Act, the Financial Advisory and Intermediary Services Act, and the Prevention and Combating of Corrupt Activities Act, there is little proactiveness and vigilance in the combating and investigation of white-collar crime. Craig Ashton-Smith is the founding director of Ashton-Smith Incorporated and in 2011 was appointed as an acting judge of the High Court in Cape Town. Craig, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening. Right, so white-collar crime. We hear about this in the news and I'm not quite sure if everybody's quite aware of exactly what white-collar crime is. Could you just give us a little bit of a definition? I think white-collar crime encapsulates criminal activities that occur within corporate entities and business. There is a further act that was enacted called the Prevention of Corrupt Activities Act that was brought in to facilitate the reporting of such activities um, to protect so-called whistleblowers. And what directors of companies are not aware of is this act actually provides an obligation on the head of an organization when he becomes aware of corrupt activities to actually report it to the authorities. Now, one of the difficulties is, is once those crimes are reported, there's very little or anything that is done by the authorities to actually vigilantly prosecute and investigate these crimes, uh, which is very concerning. One must bear in mind that although there, there's no violent element to white-collar crime, it's just as much a crime as any of the more serious crimes such as rape and murder. But in many instances, it just goes um, unprosecuted. I think a lot of us would be- remember, and that's not that long ago, the Fidentia scandal. And I think J. Arthur Brown got off with, I think it was 150,000 rand fine. I mean, that, that after what he'd done to hundreds of people who'd literally lost their life savings. Yes, and I, I think that, you know, I wasn't involved in that matter, but if you follow the press reports, it seems that a, a much better investigation could have been conducted of those activities in order to obtain a proper prosecution. I understand that there, there has been a petition to the Supreme Court of Appeals in relation to the uh, J. Arthur Brown conviction, and I understand that it's going to be heard by the Supreme Court of Appeals, which is really a court of equity in our land, and it will be interesting to see what the outcome of of that petition is. The other thing as well, though, Craig, from what I've gathered from news reports and things, is once people sort of are found guilty, in inverted commas, of these sort of doings and misdoings, they seem to sort of wander off and open up another company and carry on doing the same thing again. That's correct. Provisions of the Companies Act provide that when a company is put into liquidation, there is a first and second meeting of creditors, which is usually held before the master or a magistrate who's been designated by the master to hold such meetings. Now, those meetings are meetings of creditors to enable them to ask questions of those directors as to why the company failed and also to ask questions about where the assets are found their way to. And in many instances, although there is an obligation um, in terms of the Companies Act and the Insolvency Act for those directors to attend each and every First, first and second meeting of creditors and adjournment thereof, 
often directors just don't bother to rock up. And that constitutes a criminal offence, which is then reportable by the master to the National Prosecuting Authority. And I'm aware of very, very few instances where prosecutions have actually ensued arising from a failure to attend such, such a meeting of creditors. Why does there seem to be such a lack to follow these cases possibly or pro- even prosecute fully the perpetrators? I think that it's, it, it's a number of factors. I think that there is a, there, there's a lack of resource. Certainly, you know, I, in my experience, I've seen that. There also seems to be a lack of funds. The one matter that I was recently involved in was a matter um, of the company One Mobile, PTY Limited, which was run by a chap called Ernest Kutsia. And in, in that particular matter, the creditors actually did full reports to the Hawks uh, with a request that the matter be investigated and he be brought to book. And I understand from the creditors that have requested such an investigation that a year and a half, or almost two years, after the, the request, uh, the Hawks are still waiting for a, approval of a budget to investigate. Now, that, that, that in itself creates a whole lot of difficulties because with the passage of time, it becomes more difficult to gather evidence and to properly investigate. Meanwhile, Mr. Kutsia operates unchecked, which I think is, uh, is, is a set of circumstances that ought to be looked at quite closely by the authorities and uh, the necessary mechanisms put in place to, to quickly and effectively investigate. Because the, the longer one leaves it, if there are any assets to, to, to recover, it becomes more and more difficult to recover those assets with the passage of time. Now, here's a case in point because the One Mobile was just the latest in a string of, of schemes, sort of, I would imagine, devised by him, where people have been losing their life savings. Correct, correct. So it's no, it's no dif- different from the master bond debacle mm. in, in the early 90s. And one has seen a, a whole string of Ponzi schemes where unwary investors are, are, are caught putting money in and effectively... The people who run these Ponzi schemes are borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. So when Peter puts in his investment, Paul is then effectively given a, a quite a large return on his investment. And generally those schemes are doomed to failure and collapse. And then everybody loses their um, hard-earned cash and savings. I was reading a quote by you, Craig, that said the public needs to know that they have the power to put a stop to the criminals who prey on the innocent. How do we do that? I think, I think it's the, 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 the two factors. One is, if the public are going to invest in, in any scheme, um, it's vital, particularly if large returns are offered uh, on investments, that the, a proper due diligence is done of the individuals that are running the scheme and what the scheme entails. In all of the Ponzi schemes that I've been involved in or in, been involved in investigating, the investors themselves have asked very few questions. Returns run from between 20 and 40%, sometimes higher. And to get a return like that, one general public must immediately ask the question, it, you know, let, let, let's just look a little closer at the, at the scheme itself and let's investigate and find out what sits behind the scheme. So that would be the first thing that people could do to avoid being caught in such schemes. And the second thing is that they... With the passage of time, creditors lose their quest to find the truth and to make sure that people are prosecuted. And I think that if there are a group of investors that have lost money, they need to stand together and make sure that they can do everything in their power to make sure that the uh, authorities prosecute these people. 
Otherwise, they're just going to open up shop again around the corner and do the same to someone else. What sort of provisions are in place to stop people like this from moving assets out of the country? We do have provisions in, in terms of exchange control that uh, with the movement of cash is restricted. So generally, you know, there, there is that um, check and balance in place. Generally, the dissipation of assets will take the form of the money is finding their way into the perpetrator's bank account. And generally, they tend to lead a very high lifestyle of travel and buying expensive assets. By the time you recover those assets and sell it on an auction, the, the, the value is actually gone. So, but what you're saying, basically, I think what we're hearing here, I think we hear this constantly, is that if something sounds too good to be true, chances are it probably is. Correct. And I think there needs to be an awareness that there are such people who will set up schemes for the purpose of taking um, others' money. And uh, I think that investors need to be very, very wary of such individuals. And I think that if there is a general vigilance uh, and caution with respect to investing in these kinds of schemes, I think that will go a long way to stopping these crimes from occurring. The sad thing is, though, that normally when these Ponzi schemes start, the first few investors do actually get their money back and do make some money, which, which obviously makes the rest of the people think, oh, see, look, they did okay. I'll put my money in there as well. And that's when it starts falling apart. That's correct. And, and the unfortunate thing is some of those transactions can constitute dispositions in terms of the Insolvency Act. So those people who have made profits or who have been paid in the beginning are then called upon by the liquidators to actually pay those monies back so that there's a fair and equitable distribution amongst the investors. So whilst the first investors may feel that they were the lucky ones, it, it doesn't always turn out like that. Sometimes they have to actually pay the money back. Gosh, so is this something that you are finding more and more happening in, in the country now, or is this something that's possibly easing off a little bit? No, I think it's, I think it's becoming more and more prevalent. Seems to be common knowledge within, with uh, with respect to white collar criminals that there are no consequences for what they what they are doing. I was involved in an inquiry recently where the member of a close corporation that had gone into liquidation had not registered for income tax, and when he was questioned about that, he seemed to 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 not be concerned at all that there were any consequences for failing to do so. So I think that in itself is a telltale sign of people being aware of the fact that there is little consequence for having perpetrated um, fraud and corruption within a corporate environment. And it's common knowledge that the authorities very seldom take steps to bring these people to book. It's very worrying. It's very concerning. It's very concerning because it allows someone to place the entity through which they've been trading into liquidation and a couple of months later just to open up shop again and to do exactly the same thing. So, but, you know, the sad part about this, Craig, is makes it, it, well, it should make us all a whole lot more cynical about almost everything. And a horrible way to live your life, though. Uh, it's very sad. The system should theoretically work. I think that one of, one of the solutions that the authorities can look at is that there are a wealth of attorneys and advocates who do this kind of work and have been doing this kind of work for years and years. And to draw perhaps on those skills to assist them with their investigations. And I do know that there are some advocates and attorneys who are engaged from time to time by the National Prosecuting Authority to assist with such investigations because it's important to know what you're looking for. 
and how to, to, to follow the, the, the trail of assets and the trail of cash. And if it's a lack of resource involved, then, you know, there are resources available. And I think if, if there are some high-profile prosecutions and a message sent out that, that, that we as a society do not tolerate such criminal conduct, I think we'll bring it back into into place which it ought to be and currently, which it isn't. Well, yeah, you know, it's, I just don't like living my life in this totally cynical bubble all the time, you know, worrying about what everybody else is doing. But, you know, unfortunately, that's the way we have to be, you know, double check everything. Don't believe these fabulous stories of, you know, amazing returns on your investments, because as we said, if it's too good to be true, nine times out of 10, it's probably going to be. It's like when you get those SMSs telling you that you've won. I got one this morning that you've just, I won 960,000 pounds on some <laughs> other thing that I had never entered. And trust me, I didn't really win it. Don't fall victim to these fabulous things that people promise you or tell you they're pretty much never never i can't say never because maybe there's one or two that might be but nine times out of ten they're not true i'm always too scared to even open yeah, those no. SMSs <laughs> because i don't know what, what information they could possibly gain from either my cell phone or if it's an email mm. details about me personally but there certainly has been in the case and i don't know if you've read about it but recently there are a lot of scams that are being perpetrated against attorney's firms where, where the perpetrator deposits a check into the attorney's trust account. It's a bad check. A call is made and said, you know, ostensibly they're from a firm of attorneys, the fraudsters. They've got a letterhead to say they've paid um, an amount of money into the attorney's trust account, a trust account in error and then request oh, right. a refund. Mm. And the unwary attorney takes it at face value and gives them a refund to find out two or three days later that the check is bounced. And this is, uh, this is something that the Law Society and the CAP has warned of. So one has to be very, very careful, particularly with the, in the electronic age that, in which we live. It is so easy to copy letterheads and, and, and to, to come across as if you're legitimate when in fact you're not. Well, yes, let's hope the world gets a little better because it's all sounding terribly depressing. It's terrible. <laughs> Craig, thank you so much for your time on the show this evening. I'm really grateful for your participation and um, wish you a pretty good evening. Thank you very much. Great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for speaking to me. Craig Ashton Smith is the founding director of Ashton Smith Incorporated and in 2011 was appointed as an acting judge of the High Court in Cape Town. The Law Report with Karen Key. The exchange rate has pushed up new vehicle prices, opening up the price gap between new and used cars, which, coupled with uncertainty around the interest rates, means buyers are starting to find better value in the used car market. Rudolf Mahoney is head of research for Westbank, a leader in vehicle and asset financing, and he joins us this evening to give us some of the do's and don'ts when buying a used car. Rudolf, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. This is one of those areas where people are always a little bit wary about purchasing sort of unknown possible things that could be wrong with second-hand cars. So what should we look out for when doing this? It's all about safeguarding yourself from buying a lemon. I guess the first thing that you can do is to always buy a car from a reputable dealership. Those are usually guys who are registered with the RMI, and, and they should be bank-approved dealerships so that they, they, they can do business with banks and banks feel comfortable in doing business with those dealerships. That's the first point uh, in safeguarding yourself. Uh, and then secondly, looking at, at the car itself, uh, if you are uh, considering buying a used car, obviously the car needs to be fit for purpose. 
meaning that if you are buying a used car and you're a person who does high mileage, you're, for example, a sales executive, then it's, it's, it's pointless buying a used car with 100,000 kilometers on it already. Uh, the car will not last you that long. So these kind of practical endeavors need to be considered when buying the used car. Uh, then secondly, you know, there are some telltale signs that one needs to look out for to avoid buying a, uh, the so-called lemon. Firstly, you know, when cars are, are priced significantly less uh, than the, the market value for that car, then that, that should be a, a warning sign that there might be something wrong with the car, either a, a, a previous um, accident history or excessive mileage or prior mechanical issues with the car and so on. And one of the things that you can do then is to possibly check the service history of the car. Now, there should be a service manual, I would imagine, in the car stamped by the person or the dealership that did the service. Yes, exactly. Uh, obviously, when, when that manual is missing from the car, there should also be a, a, a warning sign to the prospective buyer. What about financing, Rudolph? That's the other thing. I mean, people need to also be very careful of, of financing. What are the rules and regulations when it comes to pos- people possibly overextending themselves? Look, I think uh, when it comes to uh, financing a used car, you need to look, uh, obviously, at the structure of the finance agreement and, and then obviously looking out for things like balloon payments and so on. Uh, but it's also very important to look at the insurance components uh, to, to used cars, you know, because you, you, do, you are buying a car with, with mileage on the clock. One needs to consider other aspects like, for example, extending your warranties and your service plans and your maintenance plans. That becomes more and more important because you need, you need to safeguard yourself from a, a unexpected um, expense down the line. And then looking at the, at the structure of the finance agreement, it's always better to, to obviously buy a car with a, with a deposit. Uh, paying a deposit lowers your capital uh, and you know the interest that the bank charge you, charges you, it's based on the, the capital amount, so obviously you pay, you pay less in interest fee it charges and also your, your installments become less. And then obviously looking at things like uh, choosing a fixed or a linked interest rate, the rule of thumb is when interest rates are low, then it's best to opt for a fixed interest rate to, to, to secure uh, your rate at the, at, the, at the low premium. And when interest rates are high, the rule of thumb is to opt for a linked interest rate because the outlook is that interest rates would then come down and then you would also be able to benefit from that. The other thing as well is are these warranties and extended warranties and the service plans and all those sorts of things, which might cost you a little bit in the beginning, but could save you thousands for the life of the car or the time that you actually own the car. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, and when you say thousands, it could be literally, <laughs> literally several thousands yes. because cars are, the maintenance on cars are, are, are not cheap and these unexpected expenses can really uh, catch you, catch you um, out. So these are all things that people should look out for when they are actually purchasing the car. And there have been reported cases where people have not gone to reputable dealers and ended up driving a car and then just been, been discovered later that the car was actually stolen. You bought it quite honestly from somebody, but the person before that had obviously stolen the car. And then you have to literally give up the car. So you need to be very wary of where you're buying these cars from. Yeah, like any reputable dealer uh, will not trade in what we call Code 3 cars. These are cars that have been either stolen and recovered, okay, uh, or has been in severely, uh, severe damage uh, through accident and has been repaired uh, to make it uh, look nice again. Traditionally, banks, or I know for a fact West Bank, we will not finance any Code 3 vehicles.
So if a car has been stolen and recovered, you would, if, and if the person whose car it was wants to now sell it, you wouldn't actually finance that car? We won't finance that car. Normally the insurance would have paid out and then mm. that car would, be, would belong to the insurance company. Gosh, so people, these, there's lots of little things that people need to look out for. It's not that easy, not just sort of walking into a dealership and buying a car anymore. That's why you rely on the advice that the dealership gives you, uh, the salesperson in terms of the car that they're selling you, and then there's the finance and insurance person who, who gives you the, the, the right advice uh, in structuring your finance agreement and the, the range of insurance products that, that's available to you. And the other thing as well when buying a car, there's sort of other things you need to look out for. You know, if, you, if you're on a relatively tight budget, you're now have, making the repayments on the car, don't go and buy something where your fuel consumption is going to be exorbitant. Yes, obviously, once again, comes back to, to, to the car, it has to be fit for purpose. If you're a person doing high mileage, then it, it would be unwise uh, buying a car which has high fuel consumption, you know, rather than opt for something like a, like a diesel derivative, which gets extended mileage on, on, on a tank of petrol or fuel. And the one thing that I know about West Bank, though, when, when people are financing the vehicles, you do have something called a finance and insurance liaison at the dealerships, which will actually help people to try and assess the affordability for themselves of what they're wanting to purchase. They are specially trained individuals, and they've got necessary accreditation to, to firstly uh, give uh, an assess or to do an assessment on the client to, to assess the needs, and then to also give advice to the customer in terms of the insurance and the and the finance structures uh, and it and it is all linked to the financial advisory intermediary act uh, for them to give the necessary and correct advice to those customers now i would imagine that financing a vehicle is pretty much the same as go- well in certain ways the same as going to a furniture store for example and taking out something on higher purchase where you have to be it has to be explained to you about the financial implications you, you have to do some sort of a credit check what actually happens when they're coming in to actually make that purchase well um the well the customer needs to be aware that uh, as with any purchase you need to to, to bring with your your proof of your your income a salary uh, advice your bank statements there's also the KYC documents your proof of address that you need to bring with uh, obviously your your driver's license uh, so that there's a lot less toing and froing asking for documents and so on uh, then when you when you submit your your your, your application to the finance houses then uh, obviously they will look at your credit record and then obviously your your um your income and your expenditures must match up to prove that you can actually afford this this item that you you're interested in buying right so it is as well people need to, it has to be explained i would imagine is the same with any other financial transaction it has to be explained to the, to the client exactly what this entails and what their responsibilities are yeah, the, the Phase Act makes it a necessity for this F&I person to, to assess the customer's needs and give him the correct advice in terms of the product that he, that's available to him. And then obviously in the National Credit Act makes it, a, makes it compulsory for the F&I to explain the terms of the, 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 the credit agreement that that person is entering into. Okay, so if you're going off to buy a car, know that you need to take lots of documents. I would check first before you get there, phone up and ask what you need to bring with you. And then be aware that it's it's the National Credit Act means that they have to check out your credit worthiness, I would imagine, um, to make quite sure that you can afford to buy the car because you'd hate to buy it. And then six months down the line, it's repossessed. What happens when it, when it comes to that sort of thing, Rudolph, the repossession? Well, obviously, um, it's bad for business for, 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 for us to, to repossess cars. So we really try, try and avoid that situation. Um, firstly, by 
by vetting the customer's creditworthiness. Okay, that's your first control me- mechanism. But then life happens and, and people do fall in hard times. So we do have an extensive uh, collections process where we try and negotiate with customers' repayment plans uh, to try and avoid uh, the, the, the repossession. However, when, it come, when, when it's inevitable and, and then uh, the car needs to be repossessed, then the car is, is put in storage for a, a certain amount of time during which the customer is still afforded the opportunity to make a repayment payment arrangement for the arrears. We usually ask for 75% of the outstanding amount. If you can come up with that, then we will normally release the car back to the customer. If the customer is not able to do that, then by law, we have to, we have to auction the car uh, on a public auction. Right, but we'd all rather not get to that point at all. So before you start signing anything, just make quite sure that you've dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's, and if you are going in and, and you are chatting with a finance and insurance liaison person at the dealerships, they will be able to help you, and hopefully you won't end up in the situation where your car is repossessed and then auctioned off. Rudolf, thank you so much for joining us on the show this evening and giving people some insight into what the do's and don'ts are when buying a used car. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Rudolf Mahoney is Head of Research for Westbank, a leader in vehicle and asset financing. And for more information, you can take a look at their website. It's www.westbank, W-E-S-B-A-N-K, westbank.co.za. The Law Report with Karen Key. The draft immigration regulations published for comment on the 17th of February 2014 are likely to impede the economic growth of the country by creating massive inconvenience for investors and applicants, leading to the loss of new investment and much-needed foreign skills. This is according to Leon Isaacson, Managing Director of Global Migration SA, and he joins me now. Leon, good evening. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good evening. So what is actually the crux of these new draft immigration regulations that we now can possibly comment on? Well, look, there are drafts, and, um, or rather it's in draft form, and then uh, the Minister of Home Affairs was really pushing to get this finalised by the 1st of April, which now hasn't happened. So one expects that this will be put into effect by a new minister or after the election if, you know, whatever the changes are going to be will only come into effect after the 7th of May sometime. So the major changes are that they have created critical skills permit, which replaces the exceptional skills and the quota permits. And the problem with that is that they haven't published the lists. And the list would effectively, for critical skills, indicate what government assesses is required in the economy from a skills shortage point of view. So without that list, it's very, very difficult to comment. The other thing is that from a security point of view, and I must say that we are real latecomers to this issue because other countries have worked on this for the last 10 or 12 years, they now require the applicant to um, submit their application in person, so biometric data, fingerprints, photographs, and other um, information can be taken at the time of the application, and this is to eliminate fraud. And another major shift is that um, first applications will have to be done from overseas, in other words, at a South African consulate or mission in the person's country of origin, which we believe will create quite a lot of inconvenience. The last major um, glaring error, really, is that from a constitutional point of view, they have now created rules in the regulation which actually go against prior constitutional court rulings related to spouses. This is foreign spouses of South Africans, and they're saying they must prove at least a five-year relationship before they can apply. 
um, and this is likely to cause huge problems. So if some, a South African marries, say, somebody from the UK, for example, mm. what now? Well, I mean, they what, get married, what, they come back here, and, and then that person can't work for five years. Well, they can't apply for they five years. They can't even apply so, for so, five so years. So, in fact, they can't come into the country for five years. They can't come into the country now for five they can't, years. They can't, they're not eligible to apply, and they can't come into the country as the spouse of, of that person. If, if they then said, okay, well, I'm just coming in as a visitor, or I'm going to get my own work permit separately, they would effectively be committing fraud because they, in fact, are, are going to be living with a South African in a spousal relationship, etc., etc. So it's really putting people in a very difficult situation. The other problem which arises is where people have been on a previous spousal permit and say they've been in a relationship for three or four years when they apply for their um, extension of that permit or the renewal of the permit under the new rules, they effectively will be told that they can't apply because they haven't had a five-year relationship. So time as a proxy, the five-year thing, as a proxy for the genuineness of a relationship just doesn't work in terms of our constitution. What was it before? Well, there was no set period, but obviously Home Affairs wanted to see that the relationship was genuine, and that was proven by the people actually showing that they lived at a common address. In other words, they were, were living together, that they were sharing expenses, and that there was financial and emotional support as one expects in a, in a permanent, exclusive, spousal relationship. And I think the problem is that there's probably been a, a lot of fraud, and after the fact, because remember this fraud has been going on for probably the last eight or ten years, Home Affairs is now punishing new applicants, which is really, again, not a proxy, because you should be dealing with the people who currently hold permits that are not genuine. So now we've got time still to comment. The comments were closed on the 7th of March, but um, I think because of the volume of comments and the level of criticism, that um, implementation on the 1st of April has been put on hold. But if they push this through with some of these major issues still in the, the next phase of the draft, I think that there will be a lot of um, litigation around this. I must also say that they've actually removed the clause, which is Section 46, which allowed advocates, lawyers, and practitioners to represent people at home affairs. And we believe that this is a major problem because, as you can see, there are really technical issues where people are requiring representation. Immigration is complicated. It's, this is not just about getting a holiday visa to go skiing in Switzerland or go and lie on the beach in Thailand. This is serious stuff where if people are not given um, the right advice at the Home Affairs front desk or they, their employers um, are advised incorrectly at, at Home Affairs, there are, there are huge implications and ramifications. So people do require representation in many cases. I was reading some information that you've put out about all of this, and you were talking about the problems that are foreseen under these new re possible new regulations as far as the general work permit is concerned as mm. well. Well, look, the, the big push from government in terms of the, the publicity has been that this is designed to actually make things easier. And, and the one thing that these regulations will not do is make the process easier. And part of that is that the Department of Labor takes on an increasing role in two very important permits. One is the general work permit and in the corporate permit. Uh, we know that Labor does not have the staff and it, it does not have the capacity to deal with these issues, and I mean in, in normal time frames. I'm talking about in the time frames of 30 days that the courts normally look at as reasonable times for turnaround times for these work permits. If you add a three- to six-month labor process to this, which is typically how long labor take to respond and to deal with these applications um, before they go to home affairs, you're actually creating an inordinate delay 
That's the first thing. And you start impinging on the rights of employers and individuals and their families to actually have a, 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 a speedy outcome to these issues. And obviously there's a lot of work to be done before something like this, which is as far-reaching as these regulations are, a lot of work has to be done to get the staff up to date and to have a quick turnaround process. And there's apparently some problems as well with the corporate permit. Look, the corporate permit um, has been quite contentious for the last few years. And with the corporate permit, Department of Labor, again, will get involved with that. It's really, I, I think people are going to abandon the corporate permit as a means of getting staff into the country because it's actually becoming so problematic as a, as a process it's been difficult recently, and this, I believe, is going to make it more difficult. And Labor's creating processes which duplicate the home affairs processes. So you're having processes overlaying processes, and the time, the time requirement for Labor approval is anything from about two to three months up to nine months. So people lose, lose interest after that kind of period um, of administrative adjudication. Basically losing skills and income into the country. I think one has got to look at the way foreign investors work and, and the way foreign skills are typically recruited. If investors come into the country, they probably want to bring in their lead staff to set up the business and set up the, the company. That's before they employ South Africans, and that could be, could be 5, 10, 20, 50 people. Um, and that, those people typically come in for three to five years, and a few of them may stay behind. What follows that decision is the capital to set up the business and the skills and then they start employing South Africans. So if you interrupt that and you interfere with that process in any way, or you don't make it easy. If it looks like you're obstructing people after you said, you know, come to our beautiful country and invest, and we, we want you here, and we want to create the jobs and the employment, if you start creating obstacles, what happens is that they lose interest, and they start saying, well, actually, Botswana is more attractive, or Mozambique is more attractive. One, one of the big industries in this country that's really suffered from this is mining. And foreign investors are not going to come back here until we settle the environment with respect to mining. Permitting is, is one part of that whole, that whole process for investors, and we need to make sure that, in fact, we're competitive and that we're, we're, we offer a competent bureaucracy that turns things around quickly and we have, cons- we have um, consistent decision make, positive decision-making with respect to these applications. So I just want to go back to something we were chatting about earlier. It was to do with the spouses and the five-year relationship thing. Yes. I was reading something here as well about the draft regulation perpetuates the incorrect interpretation of the legislation with respect to spouses by requiring these applicants to apply for relatives permits, which are only intended for applicants who are blood relatives. Yes. So what about the wife or husband that you just married? Well, clearly they're not blood relatives. No. <laughs> you can't well, exactly. Marry. In terms of common law, well, in then we'd be in jail anyway. We'd be in jail but for that anyway. So, yeah, yeah you know. you'd have to commit incest well, yes. to get the permit. Cool. So, and the problem is that on a relatives permit, as it's um, framed at the moment in the law, you cannot work. So now what you're doing is saying, come in on this permit, which in fact was intended for blood relatives, and we'll give it to you, but you can't work. The Constitutional Court has already decided that. Within 30 days, in, in a couple of cases, um, there's Dawood Shalabi and others and Boyson and others versus the Minister of Home Affairs. And these are constitutional court governments, uh, sorry, judgments that the Home Affairs has acknowledged and works by, that after 30 days, these people may reside, if that's the application, and they may work after 30 days because Home Affairs can't take an inordinate amount of time to allow people to 
um, exercise their constitutional rights with respect to their responsibilities to their family, their rights with respect to their family, or their responsibilities to provide for their families. So you, you can't then go and start writing regulations to circumvent the constitutional court judgments. You have to then adapt the, the act and the regulations to actually fit in with those constitutional court judgments because these are principal constitutional issues which have now been decided. And, and I must say that the, the practitioner and the legal community, as well as the, some advocates I spoke to, said that it's just unthinkable that they should try and write these regulations to try and reverse constitutional court governments. They should, they should know that those are, those are fixed things which you can't really play with when you're dealing with new regulations. So how are we looking, though, Leon? I mean, is there any chance that these things aren't going to become law? I think what's going to happen is that there are going to be delays. Um, the Cabinet, obviously, is only chosen after the next election, so it's not certain that Minister Pandor will be coming back as the Minister of Home Affairs. So we're then in the hands of a new minister. I think they're under some pressure to get these regulations sorted out, but it would be really unwise to push these regulations through. What happened in 2002 was that the regulations were actually held up for almost four years because they were so messy that the, the courts actually set them aside and Home Affairs found themselves in a state of disarray and it took them a long time to fix this up. So it would be, it would be far better to consult properly, uh, make sure that there are no issues um, which can be taken to court um, and then actually run those by some high-level drafters to make sure that there are still no gaps and then start implementing them. Because I think it, it really does disrupt the government department, and I think it, it also causes quite a lot of um, loss of morale um, in their staff because they then can't implement and they can't work properly. You know, I understand that they're needing to tighten up and they need to have something in place to make sure that all this works properly. But you, this almost looks to me like a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction to a, a possible problem. The problem is that nobody knows what the problem is. Um, you know, we've been talking about, or the government has been talking about having a, a high-level assessment and a high-level study and developing high-level policy on South African immigration, and that, that hasn't been completed. So we're actually, as you say, kind of doing a bit of Band-Aid here. We, we're reacting by saying, well, we must, change, we must change the regulations or we must change the law over here, there, and everywhere. The problem is that it's now been changed three times since... 2002, and it's all been done on a patchwork basis. And immigration hasn't really been given the priority and the budget that it needs to actually get it onto the right footing. The other point of confusion is that when people talk about immigration, everybody thinks about the Zimbabwean refugees. And that is a, that is a completely separate issue which has to be dealt with um, as, as the informal um, the informal issues which result from the, the unrest and the problems in surrounding SADC countries as opposed to the formal immigration process where people are conducting activities, legal activities in terms of the normal investment procedures and the normal uh, operation of the economy. Well, we just have to keep our fingers crossed that uh, things are all going to go well. Hopefully, we, as you said, nothing really much is going to happen until after the election. So then we'll hopefully be seeing more information possibly coming out about these draft regulations and uh, we'll be, maybe they'll take some of the comments into account which might change things a little bit. Yes, we hope so. Well, thank you so much, Leon, for joining us on the show this evening, and uh, we look forward to the outcome of this. Uh, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you. I was chatting there with Leon Isaacson, and he's the Managing Director of Global Migration SA. And for more information on Global Migration, you can take a look at the website. It's globalimsa, globalimsa.com. 
The Law Report with Karen Key. And finally this evening, I'll be chatting with Simon Lepps, CEO of Fonterra Digital Works, about the new electronic services regulations published by the South African Treasury. Electronic services regulations will introduce 14% VAT on digital products and services, such as e-books, music and other digital goods sold by foreign businesses from the 1st of April this year. Simon, good evening. Welcome to the show. This is rather depressing news. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, it could be depressing and it could not. Um... What remains to be seen is how this is going to be enforced. It's going to be relatively easy to get a couple of the big players like Amazon and Apple and eBay to sign up because they are multinationals. Some of them do have representation in South Africa. They wouldn't want to fall foul of the tax laws. But if you consider those are three of probably a couple of hundred thousand companies that sell digital products into South Africa, there's no incentive for the rest of them to actually join up and charge the VAT. So we may get away with not having to pay it. The thing, though, about buying things online, and I am a dedicated online shopper, let me tell you, when you purchase things from overseas and they come in, you still have to go off to the post office and go and pay that import duty on them. They they could potentially slap the VAT on at that point. Without a doubt. The law is aimed more at digital and virtual goods. So we're talking about web hosting, email hosting, digital books and uh, music, things like that. That's going to be much harder to enforce. You'll obviously get the big players signing up because they don't want to be on the wrong side of a government. But the smaller players, say somebody who does web hosting and has three or four clients in South Africa, there's no real incentive for them to sign up and go through the motions of actually submitting VAT returns in South Africa. Um, And there's no real way that SARS can enforce anything on them because they're not based in South Africa. So it's effectively not stuff that we are purchasing to be delivered to us sort of through the mail or by couriers or anything. This is stuff that you potentially would download, for example, music like iTunes and that sort of thing. Yes, so it's looking at everything. I mean, the most common things are obviously music and e-books and things like that. But if you actually look a little bit deeper, uh, there's a huge amount of digital services that are provided to South Africans. Um, You can host your websites overseas. You can host your email overseas. There's a lot of things like that. And if you take a look at it, a year and a half ago, 18 months ago, if you were paying $100 for your web hosting each month, that would work out to be about 650 rand. Now, going forward, if you're paying $100, it's going to be just over 1,000 rand with the exchange rate. Plus, you've got to add on 14% VAT. So it's probably going to be closer to about 1,200 rand. So it's almost a 100% increase. And that's going to be the problem for people who are using suppliers who do register for VAT overseas. So how is it actually going to affect the consumers? I mean, it's, it's going to be a complete nightmare. Well, it is. It's going to make things far more expensive. I mean, between the drop in the value of the rand against the dollar and adding on another 14%, in some cases you could end up paying 100% more than you were paying 18 months ago. And, you know, if it's a, if it's a large input into your business, it could make your business not viable any longer. Because this is going to end up, I would imagine, restricting consumer choice in this country. Well, definitely. And I think the the biggest problems come in with things like students and research papers that are only available online from overseas providers. If those overseas providers do register for VAT, then these students are going to end up paying almost double than what they were paying at the beginning of last year. Um, And that's where it's really going to hurt. And as it is, we have an issue about the cost of hard copy books and now online information is going to be almost on the same level as that. Of course. And I think if you actually look at it, 
you know, for SARS, I don't think it's going to make that much of a difference to them. They're not going to collect nearly as much as they think they are. I think the enforcement is going to cost them more than they're going to collect. And for the small group of publishers that felt that it wasn't a level playing field and who lobbied for this law, I just don't see an upside for them. So all in all, it really is going to be the consumer that loses out all round. I was about to ask you, what on earth prompted this? Well, SARS probably saw it as another way to squeeze some more money out of the more affluent people in South Africa, because obviously those are the people that are shopping online. It's obviously the high LSM people, and they saw a way of getting some extra money out of them. I don't think they thought about enforcement and how much it's going to cost them to actually collect this money. And the story is that it was pushed by a number of South African publishers who felt that uh, they were not getting a fair shake based on people not having to pay VAT from goods overseas. Personally, I just don't see the point of this. I think that, yes, there are other countries overseas that are trying to do this. Um, some of them are succeeding, some of them aren't. Uh, all in all, I think that we have bigger fish to fry in this country. There's other things that can be done, and this is going to be more of a hindrance than a help to everyone. So basically what we're looking at here, things like digital content, Internet-based games, research documents you mentioned, e-books, what else are we looking at? And, and how are we going to know? We, I mean, would it obviously have to be displayed quite prominently that this is one of those products you're going to have to end up paying 14% percent well, VAT on it? Well, that's the whole thing. I mean, the law says that you have to provide a price that includes VAT, mm. um, that you have to submit VAT returns, that you have to pay the VAT to the South African government. Now, if you're in South Africa, you have a South African citizen or someone who lives in South Africa who's registered with SARS that they can go after if they don't receive the VAT, how is this going to work overseas? Are we going to force every single internet site in the world that is supplying anything into South Africa to show their prices, including VAT? How are we going to get the VAT from them? What's going to happen if they don't pay it? Are we going to send people overseas to America, to Azerbaijan, to Russia and go knock on doors of these companies that are providing services and say, please, can we have the money, we the South African government? I mean, they'll get laughed out of there. And at the end of the day, there's no real huge incentive for any of these companies because most of them uh, find South Africa as a very, very small part of the international business. And if you had to tell them, comply with the laws or lose your South African business, I would guess 99% of them would say, goodbye, South African business. And then we come back to restricting co uh, consumer choice. Of course. And, you know, if, if they do, if for just, I'm not saying anybody would do this, but there is always the possibility that a company could say, yes, okay, we will include the 14% VAT. So we as South African consumers pay the price, including the VAT, the 14%, and then it's never collected. Of course. And then they could end up getting 14% sort of little extra bonus on top of everything else. Without a doubt. And why wouldn't they do that? Because the South African government has no jurisdiction where they live and where they are based and where they operate from. And there's no ways for them to enforce this. I mean, there are ways to, for the South African government to go after the credit cards and track who's buying things overseas and then go back to you and ask you to pay VAT afterwards. But as you said earlier, when goods come into South Africa, they don't release them until you've paid VAT. If you've got the goods already, is SARS going to come to your house, knock on your door and say, please, can we have VAT for this? How can they prove that it was you that bought it and it wasn't somebody else using your card or whatever? You know, just, uh, to me, it seems like a little bit of a grab to see if we can squeeze some more money out of the people that pay tax in South Africa. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, too bad. It's not going to affect the people at SARS. It's going to affect the consumers. Why have we not heard that much about it before it suddenly ended up being law? 
because that's generally the way things operate in South Africa. We try, the government seems to try get things through as quickly as possible. There, there has been time for uh, public comment and feedback on this, but nobody's really come up with anything. Um, I, I have a feeling it's just because most people, I mean, I'm in, I'm in the digital game. I'm looking at this as very much a nah, whatever. It doesn't bother me one way or the other. If the companies that I work with are going to charge VAT, and they're going to be pay, and our suppliers are going to charge us VAT. Then obviously that's input output VAT, and we can we can claim that back from SARS. Other than that, I just don't think it's going to be enforceable. So I think some people are going to get away with it, and it's probably going to hit the people that it'll affect the most, and they're going to end up paying more. Uh, right. So where do we as consumers go from here? What should our next step be? We don't have a choice in our next step. We just carry on doing exactly what we're doing, and we hope that the sites that we're purchasing from have not registered for VAT. If they are registered for VAT, we have no choice. If we want to purchase from those sites, we have to pay the VAT that they're charging. Okay, but if you're a company purchasing this, you'd need to know if this company is actually charging you VAT. Yes, well, look, it's got to be obvious that they're charging you VAT. They've got to provide you with a VAT invoice. They have to clearly state the amount of VAT that they're charging. Um, Is this for anybody who's purchasing off their site? Yes, well, anyone from South Africa. You and know, you think they're actually going to do that? Well, that, that's what makes it interesting, how many of them are going to do it. So, you know, for someone like Amazon that uh, has huge call centers in South Africa, they're going to have to do it because there is a way of, of finding them and getting to them. Um, for Apple, they have agreements with uh, the movie distribution companies and games companies and things like that for the iTunes store in South Africa. So they do have a presence here eBay has a presence in South Africa through Gumtree and indirectly through PayPal and Magento. So some of those companies are going to have to register. But there are hundreds of thousands more that have no presence in South Africa that only deliver digital goods and are not going to care about it. Right, so basically it's a case of now it's, it's happened. The 1st of April it came into effect. And uh, I think it's almost a case of those of us who do shop online need to just keep an eye out and just see what's the, what the companies are doing, basically, because there's nothing that we can do about this at this point. It's there, it's in law, it's been brought in by the Treasury. And um, yeah, basically just, you know, when you're buying things online, just keep an eye out and see what on earth the companies are doing. Yeah, I think the most important thing for you is to make sure that if anyone is actually charging VAT that you see that they are registered and you do know that the VAT that you pay them is going to make its way back to SARS. I suppose it's law. It's, you can only hope that the money doesn't get stolen, but there's not much you can do past that. As long as you make sure that the company is actually registered and the VAT that you're paying is going to go back to the South African government and not into somebody's pocket uh, sitting in Russia while they sell you some sort of Internet service. Right, well, yes, it, it has, that's not a very cheery thought. We have to now pay extra for things, but I suppose it's the way it goes. Simon, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show this evening. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. Simon Lefts is CEO of the Fonterra Digital Works, and for more information on Fonterra, you can take a look at the website. It's fonterra.co.za, and that's F-O-N-T-E-R-A, fonterra.co.za. My thanks once again this evening to Craig Ashton-Smith, Rudolph Mahoney, Leon Isaacson and Simon Lips. They've been my guests on tonight's edition of the Law Report program. And a reminder that if you need any information regarding the Law Report, you can find it on Facebook. Just go to Law on SAFM. If you'd still like to contact me directly, you can email me on law 
at safm.co.za. The Law Report is on the air on SAFM every Monday evening between 9 and 10, and in next week's programme, being the first Monday of the month, I'll be joined in studio once again by attorney Michael Begram, when we'll be taking your calls and discussing labour law. And in the meantime, I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after 9 with Health Matters, so join me then. Well, it's time right now for some nighttime music.